Chapter 2. How Demagogues Win. Monarchy, tyranny, oligarchy, democracy. All of these ways of organizing societies were familiar to Plato and Aristotle more than 2,000 years ago. But the illiberal one-party state, now found all over the world, think of China, Venezuela, Zimbabwe, was first developed by Lenin in Russia starting in 1917. In the political science textbooks of the future, the Soviet Union's founder will surely be remembered not just for his Marxist beliefs, but as the inventor of this enduring form of political organization. It is the model that many of the world's autocrats use today. Unlike Marxism, the illiberal one-party state is not a philosophy. It is a mechanism for holding power, and it functions happily alongside many ideologies. It works because it clearly defines who gets to be the elite, the political elite, the cultural elite, the financial elite. In the monarchies of pre-revolutionary France and Russia, the right to rule was granted to the aristocracy, which defined itself by rigid codes of breeding and etiquette. In modern Western democracies, the right to rule is granted, at least in theory, by different forms of competition, campaigning and voting, meritocratic tests that determine access to higher education and the civil service, free markets. Old-fashioned social hierarchies are usually part of the mix, but in modern Britain, America, France, and until recently Poland, most assumed that democratic competition is the most just and efficient way to distribute power. The most appealing and competent politicians should rule. The institutions of the state, the judiciary, the civil service, should be occupied by qualified people. The contests between them should take place on an even playing field to ensure a fair outcome. Lenin's one-party state was based on different values. It overthrew the aristocratic order, but it did not put a competitive model in its place. The Bolshevik one-party state was not merely undemocratic, it was also anti-competitive and anti-meritocratic. Places in universities, civil service jobs, and roles in government and industry did not go to the most industrious or the most capable. They went to the most loyal. Individuals advanced not because of talent or industry, but because they were willing to conform to the rules of the party. Though those rules were different at different times, they were consistent in certain ways. They usually excluded the former ruling elite and their children, as well as suspicious ethnic groups. They favored the children of the working class. Above all, they favored people who loudly professed belief in the party, who attended party meetings, who participated in public displays of enthusiasm. Unlike an ordinary oligarchy, the one-party state allows for upward mobility. True believers can advance, a prospect especially appealing to people whom the previous regime or society had not promoted. Arendt observed the attraction of authoritarianism to people who feel resentful or unsuccessful back in the 1940s, when she wrote that the worst kind of one-party state invariably replaces all first-rate talents, regardless of their sympathies, with those crackpots and fools whose lack of intelligence and creativity 
is still the best guarantee of their loyalty. Lenin's disdain for the idea of a neutral state, for apolitical civil servants, and for any notion of an objective media was an important part of his one-party system, too. He wrote that freedom of the press is a deception. He mocked freedom of assembly as a hollow phrase. As for parliamentary democracy itself, that was no more than a machine for the suppression of the working class. In the Bolshevik imagination, the press could be free and public institutions could be fair only once they were controlled by the working class via the party. The far left's mockery of the competitive institutions of bourgeois democracy and capitalism, its cynicism about the possibility of any objectivity in the media, the civil service, or the judiciary, has long had a right-wing version too. Hitler's Germany is the example usually given, but there are many others, from Franco's Spain to Pinochet's Chile, Apartheid South Africa was a de facto one-party state that corrupted its press and its judiciary to exclude blacks from political life and promote the interests of Afrikaners, white South Africans descended mainly from Dutch settlers who were not succeeding in the capitalist economy created by the British Empire. It's true that there were other parties in apartheid South Africa, but a one-party state is not necessarily a state with no opposition parties at all. Although Lenin's Communist Party and Hitler's Nazi Party arrested and murdered their opponents, there are plenty of examples of one-party states, even quite vicious one-party states, that permitted some limited opposition, if only for show. Between 1945 and 1989, many of the Communist Parties of Eastern Europe allowed opponents, peasants' parties, pseudo-Christian Democrats, or in the case of Poland, a small Catholic party, to play roles in the state in the rigged parliaments or in public life. In recent decades, there have been many examples, from Ben Ali's Tunisia to Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, of de facto one-party states that controlled state institutions and limited freedom of association and speech, but allowed a token opposition to exist so long as that opposition didn't actually threaten the ruling party. This form of soft dictatorship does not require mass violence to stay in power. Instead, it relies upon a cadre of elites to run the bureaucracy, the state media, the courts, and in some places, state companies. These modern-day clerics understand their role, which is to defend the leaders, however dishonest their statements, however great their corruption, and however disastrous their impact on ordinary people and institutions. In exchange, they know that they will be rewarded and advanced. Close associates of the party leader can become very wealthy, receiving lucrative contracts or seats on state company boards without having to compete for them. Others can count on government salaries as well as protection from accusations of corruption or incompetence. However badly they perform, they will not lose their jobs. Around the world, there are many versions of the illiberal one-party state from Putin's Russia to Duterte's Philippines. In Europe, there are many would-be illiberal parties, some of which have been part of ruling coalitions, for example, in Italy and Austria. But as I write this, only two such illiberal parties have monopolies on power, law and justice in Poland and Viktor Orban's Fidesz party in Hungary. Both have made major steps towards the destruction of independent institutions and both have showered benefits on their members as a result. 
Not only did law and justice change the civil service law, making it easier to fire professionals and hire party hacks, it also fired heads of Polish state companies. People with experience running large companies were replaced by party members as well as their friends and relatives. Typical is Janina Goss, an avid maker of jams and preserves and an old friend of Kaczynski's, from whom the prime minister once borrowed a large sum of money to pay for a medical treatment for his mother. She had held some low-level party jobs before, but now she was named to the board of directors of Polska Grupa Energetyczna, the largest power company in Poland, an employer of 40,000 people. In Hungary, Viktor Orban's son-in-law is a similarly wealthy, privileged figure. He was accused of defrauding the EU, but no investigation was ever completed. The case against him was dropped by the Hungarian state. You can call this sort of thing by many names. Nepotism, state capture, corruption. But if you so choose, you can also describe it in positive terms. It represents the end of the hateful notions of meritocracy, political competition, and the free market. Principles that, by definition, have never benefited the less successful. A rigged and uncompetitive system sounds bad if you want to live in a society run by the talented. But if that isn't your primary interest, what's wrong with it? If you believe, as many of my old friends now believe, that Poland will be better off if it is ruled by people who loudly proclaim a certain kind of patriotism, people who are loyal to the party leader, people who are, echoing the words of Kaczynski himself, a better sort of Pole, then a one-party state is actually more fair than a competitive democracy. Why should different parties be allowed to compete on an even playing field if only one of them deserves to rule? Why should businesses be allowed to compete in a free market if only some of them are loyal to the party and therefore truly deserving of wealth? This impulse is reinforced in Poland as well as in Hungary and many other formerly communist countries by the widespread feeling that the rules of competition are flawed because the reforms of the 1990s, when mass privatization and the imposition of free market rules transformed the economies, allowed too many former communists to recycle their political power into economic power. Both Orban and Kaczynski frequently described their opponents as communists and even went over foreign admirers for doing so. In Orban's case, his primary opponents, at least in the earlier part of his career, really were former communists, renamed as socialists, so this description had some power. But in both countries, this appeal to anti-communism, which felt so important a quarter century ago, seems thin and superficial now. Since at least 2005, Poland has been led solely by presidents and prime ministers whose political biographies began in the anti-communist solidarity movement. Kaczynski's primary rivals are in the liberal center-right, not on the left. There is no powerful ex-communist business monopoly in Poland either, at least not at the national level, where plenty of people have made money without special political connections. Indeed, the most prominent ex-communist in Polish politics right now is Stanisław Piotrowicz, a former communist prosecutor in the martial law era, now Law and Justice's nominee to the Constitutional Court. He is, unsurprisingly, a great enemy of judicial independence. 
Orban regularly employs former communists in high post too. The anti-communism of both governments is another form of hypocrisy. Nevertheless, grim warnings about the influence of communism retain an appeal for the right-wing ideologues of my generation. For some of them, it seems to explain their personal failures or just their bad luck. Not everybody who was a dissident in the 1970s got to become a prime minister or a best-selling writer or a respected public intellectual after 1989, and for many, this is a source of burning resentment. If you are someone who believes that you deserve to rule, then your motivation to attack the elite, pack the courts, and warp the press to achieve your ambitions is strong. Resentment, envy, and above all the belief that the system is unfair, not just to the country, but to you, these are important sentiments among the nativist ideologues of the Polish right, so much so that it is not easy to pick apart their personal and political motives. Certainly, that's what I learned from the story of Jacek Kurski, the director of Polish state television and the chief ideologist of the would-be one-party state. He started out in the same place at the same time as his brother, Jarosław Kurski, who edits the largest and most influential liberal Polish newspaper. Born in the same family, they believe in two very different ideas of Poland. They are two sides of the same Polish coin. To understand the Kurski brothers, it's important to understand where they came from. The port city of Gdańsk, on the Baltic Sea, where shipyard cranes loom like giant storks over old Hanseatic street facades. The Korskis came of age there in the early 1980s, when Gdańsk was both the hub of anti-communist activity in Poland and a shabby backwater, a place where intrigue and boredom were measured out in equal doses. At that particular moment, in that particular place, the Kurski family stood out. Anna Kurska was a lawyer and a judge, active in the Solidarity Trade Union, the main opposition organization at the time. At home, their door was always open. All day long, people would stop by, hoping to discuss some urgent legal matter, maybe get some advice. Then they would stay, chat, drink tea, smoke, drink tea again, and chat some more. Nobody phoned up in advance in 1980s Gdańsk. People didn't have telephones, or if they did, they didn't trust them not to be bugged. Anna's sons became activists too. Senator Bogdan Borosiewicz, one of the most important underground trade union activists from the time, told me that their school was widely known to be zrevoltowana, rebellious, in revolt against the communist system. Yaroslav represented his class in the school parliament, an opposition initiative. He was also part of a group that read Polish conservative philosophy and literature. Jacek, slightly younger, was less interested in the intellectual battle against communism. He thought of himself rather as an activist and a radical. After martial law was declared in 1981, ending the brief period of Solidarity's legal existence, both brothers went to marches, shouted slogans, waved banners. Both worked first on the illegal school newspaper and then on Solidarność, the illegal opposition newspaper of Solidarity. In October 1989, Yaroslav went to work as the press secretary to Lech Wałęsa, the leader of Solidarity, who, after the election of Poland's first non-communist government, 
felt out of sorts and ignored. In the chaos created by revolutionary economic reforms and rapid political change, there was no obvious role for him. Eventually, at the end of 1990, Voenza ran for president and won, partly by galvanizing people who already resented the compromises that had accompanied the negotiated collapse of communism in Poland, most notably the decision not to jail former communists. The experience made Yaroslav realize that he didn't like politics, especially not the politics of resentment. I saw what doing politics was really about, awful intrigues, searching for dirt, smear campaigns. That was also his first encounter with Kaczynski, later the founder of Law and Justice, who Yaroslav told me was a master of all that. In his political thinking, there's no such thing as an accident. If something happened, it was the machination of an outsider. Conspiracy is his favorite word. Unlike Yaroslav, Yatsik would not speak with me. A mutual friend, we have several, gave me his private cell phone number. I texted and then called a couple of times and left messages. I called again and someone cackled when I stated my name, repeated it loudly and said, of course, of course, naturally the chairman of Polish television would return my call. But he never did. Eventually, Yaroslav quit and joined Gazeta Wyborcza, a newspaper founded at the time of Poland's first partially free elections in 1989. In the new Poland, he could help build something, create a free press, he told me, and that was enough for him. Jacek went in precisely the opposite direction. You're an idiot, he told his brother, when he learned Yaroslav had quit working for Wałęsa. Although he was still in high school, Jacek was already interested in a political career himself and even suggested that he take over his brother's job on the grounds that no one would notice. There was Jarek, now there's Jacek. Who can tell the difference? Jacek was, in his brother's description, always fascinated by the Kaczynski brothers, who were plotters, schemers, inventors of conspiracies right from the beginning. At the same time, he was not particularly interested in the trappings of Polish conservatism, in the books or the debates that had captivated his brother. A friend of them both told me she didn't think Jacek had any real political philosophy at all. Is he a conservative? I don't think so, at least not in the strict definition of conservatism. He's a person who wants to be on top. And from the late 1980s onward, that was where he aimed to be. The sort of emotions that don't usually get much attention from great political theorists played a big role in what happened next. Jacek Korski is not a radically lonely conformist of the kind described by Hannah Arendt, and he does not incarnate the banality of evil. He is no bureaucrat following orders. He has never said anything thoughtful or interesting on the subject of democracy, a political system that he neither supports nor denounces. He is not an ideologue or a true believer. He is a man who wants the power and fame that he feels he has been unjustly denied. To understand Jacek, you need to look beyond political science textbooks and study instead literary anti-heroes. You could look at Shakespeare's Iago, who manipulated Othello by playing on his insecurity and his jealousy. You could study Stendhal's Julian Sorel, who murdered his mistress when she stood in the way of his personal advancement. Resentment, revenge, and envy, not radical loneliness, form the background to what happened next. Jacek eventually turned against Fawenza, 
perhaps because Valenza didn't give him the job he thought he deserved. He married and divorced. He sued his brother's newspaper several times, and the newspaper sued him back. He co-authored a fiery book and made a conspiratorial film about the secret forces lined up against the Polish right. Both projects gave him a certain cachet among the group who felt, like him, unfairly excluded from power in the first 25 years of post-communist Poland. Jacek was also a member at different times of different parties or factions, sometimes quite marginal and sometimes more centrist. He was a member of parliament for one term where he made no mark. He was a member of the European parliament for one term and made no mark there either. He came to specialize in so-called black PR. Famously, he helped torpedo the presidential campaign of Donald Tusk, who eventually became prime minister of Poland and then president of the European Council, in part by spreading the rumor that Tusk had a grandfather who had voluntarily joined the Wehrmacht, the Nazi army. Asked about this invention, Jacek reportedly told a small group of journalists that of course it wasn't true, but Chimnilutokupi, which roughly translated means the ignorant peasants will buy it. Bogdan Borisiewicz, the legendary solidarity leader, describes him as without scruples. But although he spent years in public life, Jacek did not win the popular acclaim he thought that he, as a former teenage solidarity activist, was entitled to. And this, his brother believes, was a huge disappointment. All of his life, he believed that he is owed a great career, that he will be prime minister, that he is predestined to do something great. Yet fate dictated that he failed over and over again. He concluded that this was a great injustice. By contrast, Yaroslav was successful, a member of the establishment, the editor of what was arguably the country's most important newspaper. In 2015, Kaczynski plucked Jacek out of the relative obscurity of fringe politics and made him the director of state television. And this, it would seem, was Jacek's chance to exercise his frustrations. Try to imagine what would happen to the BBC if it were taken over by the conspiracy website InfoWars. That will give you a rough idea of what happened to Telewizja Polska, Poland's public broadcaster, the operator of several radio and television channels and still the main source of news for a large part of the population. Jacek's destruction of state media was unconstitutional. After 1989, state television was supposed to become public television, politically neutral, like the BBC. But it was nevertheless very thorough, the work of a man driven by a need for revenge. The best-known journalists were fired and replaced by people who had previously worked for the far-right press on the fringes of public life. Very quickly, news broadcasts ceased to make any pretense of objectivity or neutrality. Instead, they produced twisted news reports and carried out extensive vendettas against people and organizations whom the ruling party didn't like. As it turned out, these vendettas were not just ugly, they were lethal. For months on end, they ran a vicious, repetitive campaign against the popular mayor of Gdansk, Pavel Adamovich, accusing him of everything from corruption to treason. And someone was listening. On January 13th, 2019, a recently released criminal who had been watching state television in prison leapt onto a stage at the climactic moment of a charity concert and plunged a knife into Adamovich's chest. The mayor died the next day. 
Neither Korski nor Kaczynski ever acknowledged the role that the channel had played in radicalizing the murderer. On the contrary, instead of apologizing, Televisia Polska turned its venom on others. Among them was the new mayor of Gdańsk, Alexander Dulkiewicz, who now needs a bodyguard. The mayor of Poznan, along with several other mayors, has had death threats as well. The taboo against political violence has been broken in Poland, and no one is certain who might be the next victim. Still, there has been no retreat, no acknowledgement that the constant drumbeat of hatred might inspire another assassination. The channel does not pay lip service to fairness. It does not employ any neutral commentators. On the contrary, it celebrates its own ability to manipulate reality. At one point in 2018, the station showed a clip from a press conference. The then leader of the opposition party, Grzegorz Cetyna, was asked what his party achieved during its eight years in government from 2007 to 2015. The clip shows Cetyna pausing and frowning. The video slows down and then ends. It's as if he had nothing to say. In reality, Cetyna spoke for several minutes about the mass construction of roads, investments in the countryside, and advances in foreign policy. But this manipulated clip, one example of many, was deemed such a success that for several days it remained pinned to the top of Televizia Polska's Twitter feed. Under law and justice, state television doesn't just produce regime propaganda, it draws attention to the fact that it is doing so. It doesn't just twist and contort information, it glories in deceit. Jacek, deprived of respect for so many years, finally got his revenge. Even after he formally stepped aside as television director, for some inside his party he began to go too far, he remains right where he thinks he should be, at the center of attention, the radical throwing Molotov cocktails into the crowd. His frustration, born of his inability to advance in a political system that favored rationality and competence, has now been overcome. The illiberal one-party state suits him perfectly, the uglier it becomes, the more fear he will inspire, the more power he will have. Communism isn't available anymore as an enemy to fight, but new enemies can be found. His victory over them will make him even greater. From Orwell to Kessler, the European writers of the 20th century were obsessed with the idea of the big lie, the vast ideological constructs that were communism and fascism. The posters demanding fealty to the party or the leader, the brown shirts and black shirts marching in formation, the torchlit parades, the terror police, these forced demonstrations of support for big lies were so absurd and inhuman that they required prolonged violence to impose and the threat of violence to maintain. They required forced education, total control of all culture, the politicization of journalism, sports, literature, and the arts. By contrast, the polarizing political movements of 21st century Europe demand much less of their followers. They do not espouse a full-blown ideology, and thus they don't require violence or terror police. They want their clerks to defend them, but they do not force them to proclaim that black is white, that war is peace, and that state farms have achieved a 1,000% of their planned production. Most of them don't deploy propaganda that conflicts with everyday reality. And yet all of them depend, 
if not on a big lie, then on what the historian Timothy Snyder once told me should be called the medium-sized lie. To put it differently, all of them encourage their followers to engage at least part of the time with an alternative reality. Sometimes that alternative reality has developed organically. More often, it's been carefully formulated with the help of modern marketing techniques, audience segmentation, and social media campaigns. Americans are, of course, familiar with the ways a lie can increase polarization and inflame xenophobia. Long before he ran for president, Donald Trump entered American politics promoting birtherism, the false premise that President Barack Obama was not born in America, a conspiracy theory whose power was seriously underestimated at the time. But in at least two European countries, Poland and Hungary, we now have examples of what happens when a medium-sized lie, a conspiracy theory, is propagated first by a political party as the central plank of its election campaign, and then by a ruling party with the full force of a modern centralized state apparatus behind it. In Hungary, the lie is unoriginal. It is the belief, now promoted by the Russian government and many others, in the superhuman powers of George Soros, the Hungarian Jewish billionaire who is supposedly plotting to destroy Hungary through the deliberate importation of migrants. This theory, like many successful conspiracy theories, is built on a grain of truth. Soros did once suggest that wealthy Europe might make a humanitarian gesture and admit more Syrians in order to help the poorer nations of the Middle East cope with the refugee crisis. But the propaganda in Hungary and on myriad European and American far-right, white supremacist, and identitarian websites goes far beyond that. It suggests that Soros is the chief instigator of a deliberate Jewish plot to replace white Christian Europeans, and Hungarians in particular, with brown-skinned Muslims. These movements do not perceive migrants just as an economic burden or even a terrorist threat, but rather as an existential challenge to the nation itself. At various times, the Hungarian government has put Soros's face on posters, on the floors of subway trains, and on leaflets, hoping that it will scare Hungarians into supporting the government. In Poland, the lie is at least sui generis. It is the Smolensk conspiracy theory which obsesses our old friend Anita Gargas and so many others. The belief that a nefarious plot brought down the president's plane in April 2010. The story has a special force in Poland because the crash did have eerie historical echoes. The president who died, like Kaczynski, was on his way to an event commemorating the Katyn massacres, a series of mass murders that took place in 1940 when Stalin slaughtered more than 21,000 Polish officers, a deliberate assault on what was then the country's elite. Dozens of senior military figures and politicians were also on board, many of them friends of mine. My husband knew almost everybody on the plane, including the flight attendants. A huge wave of emotion followed the accident. A kind of hysteria, something like the madness that took hold in the United States after 9-11 engulfed the nation. Television announcers wore black mourning ties. Friends gathered at our Warsaw apartment to talk about history repeating itself in that dark, damp Russian forest. My own recollection of the days that followed are jumbled and chaotic. I remember going to buy a black suit to wear to the memorial services. I remember one of the widows, so frail she seemed barely able to stand, 
weeping at her husband's funeral. My own husband, who had refused an invitation to travel with the president on that trip, went out to the airport every evening to stand at attention while the coffins were brought home. At first, the tragedy seemed to unify people. After all, politicians from every major party had been on the plane. The funerals took place all over the country. Even Vladimir Putin, then the Russian prime minister, seemed moved. He went to Smolensk to meet Tusk, then the Polish prime minister, on the evening of the crash. The next day, one of Russia's most watched television channels broadcast Katyn, an emotional and very anti-Soviet Polish film, directed by Andrzej Wajda, Poland's greatest director. Nothing like it has ever been shown so widely in Russia before or since. But the crash did not bring people together, nor did the investigation into its cause. Teams of Polish experts were on the ground that same day. They did their best to identify bodies. They examined the wreckage. Once the black box was found, they began to transcribe the cockpit tape. The truth, as it began to emerge, was not comforting to law and justice or to its leader, the dead president's twin brother. The plane had taken off late. The president was likely in a hurry to land because he wanted to use the trip to launch his re-election campaign. He may have been up late and drinking the night before. As the pilots approached, they learned that there was thick fog in Smolensk, which did not have a real airport, just a landing strip in the forest. They considered diverting the plane, which would have meant a drive of several hours to the ceremony. After the president had a brief phone call with his brother, his advisors apparently pressed the pilots to land. Some of the advisors, against protocol, walked in and out of the cockpit during the flight. Also against protocol, the chief of the Air Force came and sat beside the pilots. You'll make it. Be bold, he said. Seconds later, the plane collided with the tops of some birch trees, rolled over, and hit the ground. Initially, Yaroslav Kaczynski seems to have believed that the crash was an accident. It's your fault and the fault of the tabloids, he told my husband, who had the horrific task of informing him of the crash. By that, he meant that it was the government's fault because, intimidated by tabloid journalism, it had refused to buy new airplanes. But as the investigation unfolded, its findings were not to his liking. There was nothing wrong with the plane. Perhaps, like so many people who rely on conspiracy theories to make sense of random tragedies, Kaczynski simply couldn't accept that his beloved brother had died pointlessly. Perhaps he could not accept the even more difficult fact that the evidence suggests the president and his team, perhaps even inspired by that phone call, had pressured the pilots to land, thus starting the chain of events that led to the crash. Maybe he felt guilty. The trip was his idea. Or remorseful. Or perhaps, like Donald Trump, he saw how a conspiracy theory could help him attain power. Much as Trump used birtherism to stoke suspicion of the establishment even before he was a candidate, Kaczynski used the Smolensk tragedy to galvanize his followers, to reach out to new supporters on the extreme right, to convince them not to trust the government or the media. Sometimes, he has implied that the Russian government downed the plane. At other times, he has blamed the former ruling party, now the largest opposition party, for his brother's death. 
You destroyed him. You murdered him. You are scum, he once shouted in Parliament. None of his accusations are true, and at some level he seems to know this. Perhaps to distance himself somewhat from the lies that needed to be told, he gave the job of promoting the conspiracy theory to one of his oldest and strangest comrades. Antoni Macharevich is a member of Kaczynski's generation, a longtime anti-communist, though one with some odd Russian connections and strange habits. His secretive demeanor and personal obsessions, he has said that he finds the Protocols of the Elders of Zion to be a plausible document, even led the Law and Justice Party to make an election promise in 2015, Macharevich would definitely not be the defense minister. But as soon as the party won, Kuczynski broke his promise and appointed Macharevich to precisely that post. Immediately, Macharevich began to institutionalize the Smolensk lie. He created a new investigation commission composed of cranks, among them an ethnomusicologist, a retired pilot, a psychologist, a Russian economist, and other people with no expertise on air crashes. The previous official report was removed from a government website. Police entered the homes of the aviation experts who had testified during the original investigation, interrogated them, and confiscated their computers. When Macharevich went to Washington, D.C. to meet his American counterparts at the Pentagon, the first thing he did was ask whether U.S. intelligence had any secret information on Smolensk. The reaction was widespread concern about the minister's mental state. When, some weeks after the election, European institutions and human rights groups began responding to the actions of the law and justice government, they focused on the undermining of the courts and public media. They didn't focus on the institutionalization of the Smolensk conspiracy theory, which was, frankly, just too weird for outsiders to understand. And yet the decision to put a fantasy at the heart of government policy really inspired much of what followed. Although the Macharevich Commission has never produced a credible alternative explanation for the crash, the Smolensk lie laid the moral groundwork for other lies. Those who could accept this elaborate theory could accept anything. They could accept the broken promise not to put Macharevich in the government. They could accept, even though law and justice is supposedly a patriotic and anti-Russian party, Macharevich's decision to fire many of the country's highest military commanders, to cancel weapons contracts, to promote people with Russian links, to raid a NATO facility in Warsaw in the middle of the night. The lie also gave the foot soldiers of the far right an ideological basis for tolerating other offenses. Whatever mistakes the party might make, whatever laws it might break, at least the truth about Smolensk would finally be told. The Smolensk conspiracy theory also served another purpose. For a younger generation that no longer remembered communism, and for a society where former communists had largely disappeared from politics, it offered a new reason to distrust the politicians, business people, and intellectuals who had emerged from the struggles of the 1990s and now led the country. More to the point, it offered a means of defining a new and better elite. There was no need for competition or for exams or for a resume bristling with achievements. Anyone who professes belief in the Smolensk lie is, by definition, a true patriot and thus qualified for a government job. And Poland is not, of course, the only country where this simple mechanism functions. 
The emotional appeal of a conspiracy theory is in its simplicity. It explains away complex phenomena, accounts for chance and accidents, offers the believer the satisfying sense of having special, privileged access to the truth. For those who become the one-party state's gatekeepers, the repetition of these conspiracy theories also brings another reward. Power. Maria Schmidt wasn't at my New Year's Eve party, but I've known her for almost that long. She's a historian, the author of some valuable work on Hungarian Stalinism. She gave me quite a bit of help when I was writing about Hungarian Stalinism myself. We first met in 2002 when she invited me to the opening of the Terrahaza, the House of Terror Museum in Budapest, which once gave me an award. The museum which she still directs, explores the history of totalitarianism in Hungary. When it opened, it was one of the most innovative new museums in the eastern half of Europe. From its first day, the museum has also had harsh critics. Many visitors didn't like the first room, which has a panel of televisions on one wall broadcasting Nazi propaganda and a panel of televisions on the opposite wall broadcasting communist propaganda. In 2002, it was still a shock to see the two regimes compared, though perhaps it is less so now. Others felt that the museum gave insufficient weight and space to the crimes of fascism, though communists ran Hungary for far longer than the fascists did, so there is more to show. I liked the fact that the museum was seeking to reach younger people with its video and audio exhibits and its intelligent use of objects. I also like the fact that the museum showed ordinary Hungarians collaborating with both regimes, which I thought might help their descendants understand that their country, like every country, should take responsibility for its own politics and its own history, avoiding the narrow, nationalist trap of blaming problems on outsiders. Yet, this is precisely the narrow, nationalist trap into which Hungary has now fallen. Hungary's belated reckoning with its communist past, putting up museums, holding memorial services, naming perpetrators, did not, as I thought it would, help cement respect for the rule of law. On the contrary, 16 years after the Terrahaza's opening, Hungary's ruling party respects no restraints of any kind. It has gone much further, even than law and justice, in politicizing the state media and destroying the private media achieving the latter by issuing threats, blocking access to advertising, and then encouraging friendly businessmen to buy up media properties weakened by the harassment and loss of revenue. In addition to a clack of ideologues, the Hungarian government, like the Russian government, has also created a new business elite that is loyal to Orban and that benefits accordingly. One Hungarian businessman who preferred not to be named told me that soon after Orban first took over the government, regime cronies demanded that the businessman sell them his company at a low price. When he refused, they arranged for tax inspections and other forms of harassment, as well as a campaign of intimidation that forced him to hire bodyguards. Eventually, he, like so many others in the same position, sold his Hungarian property and left the country. Like the Polish government, the Hungarian state promotes a medium-sized lie. It pumps out propaganda blaming Hungary's problems, including the coronavirus, which the country's hospitals were ill-equipped to fight, on non-existent Muslim migrants, the EU, and again, George Soros. 
Despite her opposition credentials and intellectual achievements, Schmidt, a historian, scholar, and museum curator, was one of the primary authors of that lie. She periodically publishes long, angry blog posts fulminating against Soros, against the Central European University, originally founded with his money, and against left intellectuals, by which she seems to mostly mean liberal Democrats from the center-left to the center-right. Ironies and paradoxes in her life story are plentiful. Schmidt herself was a member of the anti-communist opposition, though not a prominent one. She once told me a story about how, in her university years, all of the opponents of communism used to work in the same Budapest library. At a certain point, someone would give a signal and all of them would get up and meet for coffee. After 1989, she became a prime beneficiary of Hungary's political transition. Her late husband made a fortune in the post-communist real estate market, thanks to which she lives in a spectacular house in the Buda Hills. Although she has led a publicity campaign designed to undermine the Central European University, founded by Soros, her son is one of its graduates. And although she knows very well what happened in her country in the 1940s, she followed, step by step, the Communist Party playbook when she took over Figalo, a once-respected Hungarian magazine. She changed the editors, pushed out the independent reporters, and replaced them with reliably loyal pro-government writers. Figalo remained private property and thus technically independent. But from the beginning, it wasn't hard to see who was supporting the magazine. An issue that featured an attack on Hungarian NGOs, the cover visually equated them with the Islamic State. Also included a dozen pages of government-paid advertisements for the Hungarian National Bank, the Treasury, the official government-funded anti-Soros campaign. This is a modern reinvention of the pro-government, one-party state press, complete with the same cynical tone that the communist publications once used. It is a Hungarian version of Jacek Korski's Polish state television, sneering, crude, vicious. In April 2018, it printed a list of so-called mercenaries of Soros, the traitors who worked for organizations that had received Soros donations, thus setting them up to be subjects of scorn and attack. In December of that same year, it put Andras Heisler, the leader of the Hungarian Jewish community, on the cover with banknotes, Hungarian 20,000 forint bills, floating around and over his image. Schmidt agreed to speak with me after calling me arrogant and ignorant, only if I would listen to her objections to an article about Hungary and other things that I had written for the Washington Post. Despite this unpromising invitation, I flew to Budapest, where the candid conversation I had hoped for proved impossible. Schmidt speaks excellent English, but she told me that she wanted to use a translator. She produced a terrified-looking young man who, judging by the transcripts, left out chunks of what she said. And though she has known me for nearly two decades, she plunked a tape recorder on the table in what I assumed was a sign of distrust. She then proceeded to repeat the same arguments that had appeared in her blog posts. As her main bit of evidence that George Soros owns the Democratic Party in the United States, she cited an episode of Saturday Night Live. As proof that the United States is a hardcore, ideologically-based colonizing power, 
she cited a speech Barack Obama gave in which he criticized a Hungarian foundation for proposing to build a statue in honor of Balint Homan, the man who wrote Hungary's anti-Jewish laws in the 1930s and 1940s. She repeated her claim that immigration poses a dire threat to Hungary and became annoyed when I asked several times where all the immigrants were. They're in Germany, she finally snapped. Of course they are. Those few Middle Eastern immigrants who did manage to enter Hungary in 2016 had no desire to stay. Immigration is an imaginary problem in Hungary, not a real one. Schmidt is touchy, angry. She says she feels patronized, and not only by me. Recently, the writer Ivan Krastev has described this mood, which he has compared to a post-colonial mindset. Unimpressed by, or uninterested in, the universal values that underlie democracy, some people, especially accomplished intellectuals like Schmidt, now find it humiliating to have been imitators of the Western democratic project rather than founders of something original themselves. In speaking to me, Schmidt used precisely this language. The Western media and Western diplomats talk down from above to those below like it used to be with colonies, she told me. When Schmidt hears talk of anti-Semitism, corruption, and authoritarianism, she instinctively reacts with a version of, it's none of your business. Yet Schmidt, who spends a lot of time criticizing Western democracy, is not offering anything better or different in its place. Despite being dedicated to the uniqueness of Hungary and the value of Hungarianness, Schmidt has lifted much of her profoundly unoriginal ideology wholesale from Breitbart News, right down to the caricatured description of American universities and sneering jokes about transsexual bathrooms. Yet there is no cultural left in Hungary to speak of. And in any case, Orban, who has put the Hungarian Academy of Sciences under direct government control, terrified academics into silence, and forced the Central European University out of the country, is a far greater threat to academic freedom than anyone on the left in his country. I know of at least one group of Hungarian academics who decided not to publish an electoral analysis. It showed that Fidesz had cheated for fear of losing funding or losing their jobs. But Maria continues the fight against the non-existent left anyway. She even invited Steve Bannon and Milo Yiannopoulos to Budapest long after both of those sad figures ceased to have much influence in the United States. Even her alt-right nationalism is, in the end, another imitation. The other irony is how much she, far more so than Orban, perfectly embodies the ethos of the Bolsheviks she genuinely hates. Her cynicism is profound. Soros's support for Syrian refugees cannot be philanthropy. It must come from a deep desire to destroy Hungary. Obama's comments about the statue were not sincere, they must have reflected a financial relationship with Soros. Angela Merkel's refugee policy could not possibly have come from a desire to help people. It had another nefarious agenda. I think it is just bullshit, Schmidt said. I would say she wanted to prove that Germans this time are the good people, and they can lecture everybody on humanism and morality. Doesn't matter for the Germans what they can lecture the rest of the world on, they just have to lecture someone. All of this recalls Lenin's contempt for the institutions of bourgeois democracy, 
for the free press he considered to be phony and the liberal idealism he considered to be inauthentic. But the medium-sized lie is working for Orban, just as it has for Donald Trump and for Kaczynski, if only because it focuses the world's attention on his rhetoric rather than his actions. Schmidt and I spent most of our unpleasant two-hour conversation arguing about nonsensical questions. Does George Soros own the Democratic Party? Are the migrants who tried to cross Hungary to get to Germany in 2016 and have now stopped coming altogether still a threat to the nation as government propaganda insists? We spent no time at all discussing Russia's influence in Hungary, which is now very strong, or the fact that her museum's special exhibitions have slowly begun to reflect the new anti-German, anti-European form of political correctness in the country. On the anniversary of 1917, for example, she put on an exhibition that portrayed the Russian Revolution as nothing more than a German intelligence operation. We did not talk about corruption or the myriad ways documented by Reuters, the Financial Times, and others that Orban's friends have personally benefited from European subsidies and legislative sleight of hand. Orban's method works. Talk about emotive issues. Set yourself up as a defender of Western civilization, especially abroad. That way, nobody notices the nepotism and graft at home. Nor in the end did I learn much about Schmidt's motives. I am sure that her national pride is sincere. But does she really believe that Hungary is facing a dire existential threat in the form of George Soros and some invisible Syrians? Maybe she is one of those people who can usefully persuade themselves to believe what it is advantageous to believe. Or maybe she's just as cynical about her own side as she is about her opponents, and it's all an elaborate game. There are advantages to her position. Thanks to Orban, Schmidt has, for nearly two decades, the funding and political support needed to oversee not just her museum, but also a pair of historical institutes, giving her unique power to shape how Hungarians remember their history, a power that she relishes. In this sense, she really does recall the French writer Maurice Barres, one of Julian Benda's clerks. Though Barres began as an intellectual skeptic, Benda wrote, his material star waxed a hundredfold greater, at least in his own country, when he made himself the apostle of necessary prejudices. Barres adopted extremist far-right politics and became rich and famous in the process. Schmidt's angry anti-colonialism has helped her too. Perhaps that's why she plays the game so carefully, always keeping on the right side of the ruling party. After we met, she published on her blog, without my permission, a heavily edited transcript of our conversation, which was confusingly presented as her interview of me and seemed intended to prove that she had won our argument. The transcript also appeared on the Hungarian government's official website in English. Try to imagine the White House publishing the transcript of a conversation between, say, the head of the Smithsonian Institution and a foreign critic of Trump, and you'll understand how strange this is. But when I saw it, I realized why she had agreed to the interview. It had been a performance designed to prove to other Hungarians that Schmidt is loyal to the regime and willing to defend it, which she is. <laughs> 